0: With
1: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, I guess you could say your additional hosts are three fellow saloners who made donations to help offset the expenses associated with these podcasts. And these wonderful people are Nicholas R. ...howard H., and Amy W., and uh, I thank you all very much for your very generous donations. And I also would like to thank two other people who have been more than instrumental in not just the salon, but in many other phases of my life. In the 15th century, I'd probably call them my patrons, and in truth, I have no idea how my wife and I would have managed over the past decade without their help. Uh, And While I've said this in private on many occasions... I also want to publicly thank our dear friends, Ron and Claudia, for without them, uh, there may never have been the psychedelic salon, my books, and uh, for sure the worlds of fun we've all had in the process. So to Ron, Claudia, Nicholas, Howard, Amy, and all of the other supporters of the salon, including our fellow saloners who have linked to our website, burned copies of programs and given them away, or who simply told a friend about these podcasts. Well, thank you one and all. You know, we're all in this together, as they say, and uh, from where I sit, it looks to me like everyone is doing everything they can uh, with the resources at their disposal to help in the great work of uh, spreading the word about the value and importance of our sacred medicines and the profound thoughts that they often inspire. And speaking of profound thoughts, I return once again to that giant of 20th century literature, Aldous Huxley ever uh, ever since I began rereading Sybil Bedford's uh, wonderful biography about him I've been wanting to hear more of him in his own voice however uh, it seems that the recordings of Aldous are few and far between so I've pulled together a few sound bites from a couple of YouTube videos along with his uh, very famous brave new world interview with Mike Wallace in 1958. Along with uh, one other collection of sound bites, uh, in order to give you a little better idea of a man who far too often, I think, is uh, only mentioned in passing as the author of The Doors of Perception and Island. Now, the first clip I'm going to play is uh, about two minutes long, and although it's a bit overly dramatic for my taste, uh, I think it does a good job to set the tone.
2: Dr. Humphrey Osmond of Saskatchewan, Canada. During the late 40s and early 50s, his experiments with mescaline gained wide attention. One of those closely following Osmond's work is the celebrated author of Brave New World, Aldous Huxley. Although nearly blind, Huxley compensates for this handicap with his extraordinary intelligence. His life seems dedicated to a continuous quest for knowledge. And he was considered by European intellectuals probably the brightest young literary man of his generation in any of the western countries Huxley is fascinated with the possibility of expanding his consciousness through the use of drugs such as mescaline he has studied cultures whose members ingest plants with hallucinogenic properties to stimulate godlike visions he theorizes that there is a mechanism in the brain that can open a door to a higher realm of consciousness Humphrey Osmond is stunned when Huxley volunteers to be a guinea pig in his mescaline experiments. By using mescaline as a spiritual seeker, not a scientist, Huxley enters the surreal world of spiritual imagery. Everything he looked at was transfigured. When he looked at plants, he could just see them rather like Albert Hoffman before him, you know, bursting with life, bursting with color. After his experience with mescaline, Huxley begins encouraging others to try it as well. In essence, what Huxley was saying was that drugs like LSD uh, should be seen as a potential boon for mankind, for humankind. That they can be used not simply uh, for, uh, in a scientific context, but they could be used by normal people to study themselves, to investigate themselves as a tool of self-exploration and self-discovery. Huxley writes a book about the experience in 1954. It is titled The Doors of Perception, after the observation by poet William Blake that if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything will appear to man as it is, infinite.
0: Aldous Huxley, whose early experiments with mescaline influenced popular interest in LSD, never lost faith in the value of psychedelic drugs. On the day he died from cancer in 1963, Huxley asked his second wife, Laura, to inject him with LSD.
3: It was the same day that President Kennedy was assassinated. And we were right here in this room. It was then his room, uh, and uh, he was getting very weak. And he said to me, give me a big, big piece of paper. And he wrote uh, intramuscular 100 uh, micrograms of LSD intramuscular. And I filled the syringe with it, and uh, I gave it to him. It was very quiet. At a certain point, I said, if you hear me, squeeze my hand, and he did very weakly. Then I thought, uh, uh, I had the impression that maybe it was necessary to give a second shot, and I asked him, he indicated. So I gave him a second shot, and that, well, then it was about four or five hours where there was absolutely no jolt, no agitation, nothing, except this very, very quiet, uh, like a music that becomes less and less audible, like a, a going, fading away. There was no, no jolt when he died, it was just that breath. Stopped. And there was a beautiful expression in the
1: face. There was a very beautiful expression in the face. The main thing that I'd like you to take away from that little clip is the fact that Huxley was considered one of the Western world's leading intellectual lights. And so when he became involved in investigating psychedelics, it gave a significant amount of legitimacy to moving these substances out of the medical laboratories and uh, into creative settings, uh, such as the institute that uh, Myron Stoleroff and others established in Menlo Park. Now, this is just my opinion, but I think that Huxley's involvement with and support of psychedelics was one of the most important features of the rediscovery of these sacred medicines in Western culture. Now, uh, let's get on to the next clip, and it's quite a famous one. I'm talking about his May 1958 interview on the Mike Wallace television show. And uh, at least two of our fellow saloners sent me copies of this audio clip, but uh, shame on me. I've uh, misplaced the note I made to thank you both. So uh, please excuse my sloppy record-keeping and uh, know that I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to send this audio to me for use here in the salon. I'll let you uh, come to your own conclusions about the uh, focus of this interview, but do keep in mind that the discussion we are about to hear took place a little over 50 years ago. And to me, its uh, relevance today is more than a little spooky. So uh, let's see what you think.
0: This is Aldous Huxley, a man haunted by a vision of hell on earth. A searing social critic, Mr. Huxley, 27 years ago, wrote Brave New World, a novel that predicted that someday the entire world would live under a frightful dictatorship. Today, Mr. Huxley says that his fictional world of horror is probably just around the corner for all of us. We'll find out why in a moment. Mike Wallace Interview, presented by the American Broadcasting Company, in association with the Fund for the Republic, brings you a special television series discussing the problems of survival and freedom in America. Good evening, I'm Mike Wallace. Tonight's guest, Aldous Huxley, is a man of letters, as disturbing as he is distinguished. Born in England, now a resident of California, Mr. Huxley has written some of the most electric novels and social criticism of this century. He's just finished a series of essays called Enemies of Freedom, in which he outlines and defines some of the threats to our freedom in the United States. And Mr. Huxley, right off the bat, let me ask you this. As you see it, who and what are the enemies of freedom here in the United
4: States? Well, I don't think you can say who in the United States. I don't think there are any sinister persons deliberately trying to rob people of their freedom. But I do think, uh, first of all, that there are a number of impersonal forces which are pushing in the direction of less and less freedom. And I also think that there are a number of technological devices which anybody who wishes to use can use to accelerate this process of going away from freedom, of of imposing control. What are these
0: forces and these devices, Mr. Hudson?
4: I should say that uh, there are two main impersonal forces. Uh, uh, the first of them is not exceedingly important in the United States at the present time, though very important in other countries. Uh, this is the force which in general terms can be called overpopulation, the the mounting pressure of population pressing upon existing resources. Uh, this, of course, is an extraordinary thing. Something is happening which has never happened in the world's history before. I mean, let's just take a a simple fact that between the time of the birth of Christ and the landing of the Mayflower, the population of the Earth doubled. It rose from 250 million to probably 500 million. Today, the population of the Earth is rising at such a rate that it will double in half a century. Well, why should overpopulation work to diminish our freedoms? Well, in a number of ways. I mean, the, the um, experts in the field, like Harrison Brown, for example, pointed out that in the underdeveloped countries, actually, the standard of living is at present falling, that people have less to eat and less goods per capita than they had 50 years ago. And as the position of these countries, the economic position, becomes more and more precarious, obviously, the central government has to take over more and more responsibility for keeping the ship of state on an even keel. And then, of course, you're likely to get... Um, social unrest under such conditions, with again an uh, an intervention of the central government. So I think uh, one sees here a pattern which seems to be pushing very strongly towards a totalitarian regime. And unfortunately, as in all these uh, underdeveloped countries, the only highly organized political party is the Communist Party, it it looks rather as though they will be the heirs to this an uh, unfortunate process, that they will step into the power, position of power. Well, then,
0: ironically enough, the, one of the greatest forces against communism in the world, the Catholic Church, according to your thesis, would seem to be pushing us directly into the hands of
4: the communists because they are against birth control. Well, I think this strange paradox probably is true. Uh, there is... Um uh, it's a, an extraordinary situation, actually. I mean, the, one has to look at it, of course, from a biological point of view. The whole essence of uh, of biological life on Earth is a question of balance, and what we have done is to practice death control in a most uh, intensive manner, without uh, balancing this with uh, the birth control at the other end. Consequently, the Uh, Birth rates remain as high as they were, and death rates have fallen substantially. All right, then. So
0: much for the time being, anyway, for overpopulation. Another force that is diminishing our freedoms.
4: Well, another force which I think is very strongly operative in this country is the uh, force of what may be called overorganization. Uh, as technology becomes more and more complicated, it becomes necessary to have more and more elaborate uh, organizations, more hierarchical organizations. And incidentally, the advance of uh, technology has been accompanied by an advance in the science of organization. It's now possible to make organizations on a larger scale than was ever possible before. And so that you have more and more people living their lives out as subordinates in these hierarchical systems controlled by bureaucracies, either the bureaucracies of big business or the bureaucracies of big government. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Now the devices mm -hmm. that you were talking about, are there specific devices or uh, uh, methods of communication which diminish our freedoms in addition to overpopulation and overorganization?
4: Well, there are certainly devices which can be used in this way. I mean, let us uh, take uh, a piece of very recent and very painful history is the propaganda used by Hitler, which was incredibly effective. I mean, what were Hitler's methods? Hitler used terror on the one kind, brute force on the one hand, but he also used a very efficient uh, form of uh, of propaganda, which uh, uh, he was using every modern device at that time. He didn't have TV, but he had the the radio, which he used to the fullest extent, Mm -hmm. and was able to uh, impose his will on an immense mass of people. I mean, the Germans were a highly educated people. Well, we're
0: aware of all this, but how do you equate Hitler's use of propaganda with the way that propaganda, if you will, is used, let us say, here in the United States? Are you suggesting that uh, there is a
4: parallel? uh, Needless to say, it's not being used in this way now. But uh, I, I... the point is, it seems to me, that there are, are methods at present available, methods superior in some respects to, to Hitler's method, which could be used in a bad situation. I mean, I, what I feel very strongly is that we mustn't be caught by surprise by our own advancing technology. This has happened again and again in history. Technology is advanced, and this changes social conditions. And suddenly people have found themselves in a situation which they didn't foresee and doing all sorts of things they didn't really want to do. Well, now,
0: what do you mean? Do you mean that we, we develop our television but we don't know how to use it
4: correctly? Is that the point that you're making? Well, at present, the television, I think, is being used uh, quite harmlessly. It's being used, I think, uh, I would feel it's being used too much to distract everybody all the time. But, I mean, imagine, which must be the situation in all communist countries, where the television, where it exists, is always saying the same thing the whole time, is always driving along. It's not creating a wide front of distraction. It's creating a one-pointed drumming in of a single idea all the time. It's obviously an immensely powerful instrument. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about the potential misuse of the instrument. Uh, Exactly. We have, of course, all technology is in itself morally neutral, These are just powers which can either be used well or ill. It's the same thing with atomic energy. We can either use it to blow ourselves up, or we can use it as a substitute for the coal and the oil which are running out. You've even written about the use of drugs in this light. Well, now, this is a very interesting subject. I mean, in this book that you mentioned, this book of mine, Brave New World, uh, I postulated a substance called soma, which was a very versatile drug. It would... uh, make people feel happy in small doses, it would uh, make them see visions in medium doses, and it would send them to sleep in large doses. Well, I don't think uh, such a drug exists now, nor do I think it will ever exist, but we do have drugs which will do some of these things, and I think it's quite on the cards that we may have drugs which will profoundly change uh, our mental states uh, without doing us any harm. I mean, this is the... The pharmacological revolution which has taken place, that we have now powerful mind-changing drugs, physiologically speaking, are almost costless. I mean, they are not like opium or like uh, cocaine, which uh, do change the state of mind, but uh, leave terrible results physiologically and morally. Mr. Huxley... In your new essays, you state that these various
0: enemies of freedom are pushing us toward a real-life, brave new world, and you say that it's awaiting us just around the corner. First of all, can you detail for us what life in this brave new world which you fear so much,
4: or what life might be like? Well, to start with, I think this kind of the dictatorship of the future I think will be very unlike uh, the dictatorship's which we've been familiar with in the immediate past. I mean, take another book prophesying the future, uh, which was a very remarkable book, uh, George Orwell's 1984. Uh Well, this book was written at the height of the Stalinist regime and just after the Hitler regime. And there he foresaw a dictatorship using entirely the methods of terror, the methods of physical violence. Uh, Now, I I think what is going to happen in the future is the dictators will find, as the old saying goes, that you can do everything with bayonets except sit on them. But if you want to preserve your power indefinitely, you have to get the consent of the ruled. And this they will do, partly by drugs, as I foresaw in, uh, in Brave New World, partly by these uh, new techniques of, uh, uh, of propaganda. Uh, They will do it by bypassing the sort of rational side of man and appealing to his uh, subconscious and his uh, deeper emotions and uh, his physiology even, and so making him actually love his slavery. I mean, I think this is the danger, that actually people may be in some ways happy under the new... A regime, but they will be happy in a situation where they oughtn't to be happy. Now, but let me ask you this you're talking about a world that
0: could take place within the confines of a totalitarian state. Let's hmm. become more immediate, more urgent about it. We believe, anyway, that we live in democracy here in the United States. Do you believe that this brave new world that you talk about? Uh, could, let's say, in the next
4: quarter-century, the next century, could come here to our shores? I think it could. I mean, that's why I feel it's so extremely important, here and now, to start thinking about these problems, not to let ourselves be taken by surprise by the, the new advances in technology. I mean, the example in in regard to the use of the of the drugs we know there's enough evidence now uh, for us to be able on the basis of this evidence and using a certain amount of creative imagination to foresee the kind of uses which could be made in uh, by people of bad will with these things uh, and to attempt to to forestall this and in the same way I think with these other methods of uh, propaganda we can foresee and we can do a good deal To forestall, I mean, after all, um, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance.
0: You write in Enemies of Freedom, you write specifically about the United States. You say this, writing about American political campaigns, you say, all that is needed is money and a candidate who can be coached to look sincere. Political principles and plans for specific action have come to lose most of their importance. The personality of the candidate, the way he is projected by the advertising experts, are the things that really matter.
4: Well, this is... uh, uh, During the last campaign, there was a great deal of uh, this kind of uh, statement by the uh, advertising managers of the campaign parties, this idea that the, uh, the candidates had to be merchandised as though they were soap or toothpaste, and that you had to depend entirely on the personality. I mean, the personality is important, but there are certainly people with an extremely amiable personality, particularly on TV, who might not necessarily be very good uh, uh, in uh, positions of political trust. Well, do you feel that men like Eisenhower,
0: Stevenson, Nixon, with knowledge of forethought, were trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the American public?
4: Uh, no, but they were, they were being advised by powerful um, advertising agencies who were making campaigns of a quite different kind from what had been made before. And I think we shall see probably uh, all kinds of uh, new devices uh, coming into the picture. I mean, the, for example, this thing which got a good deal of publicity last autumn, a subliminal projection i mean as it stands this thing i think is of uh, no menace to us at the moment but i was talking the other day to one of the people who has done most experimental work in the psychological laboratory with this who was saying precisely this that it is not at the moment a danger but once you've established a principle uh, that something works you can be absolutely sure that the technology of it is going to improve steadily and um, his view of the subject was that, uh, well, maybe they will use it to some extent in the 1960 campaign, but they will probably use it a good deal and much more effectively in the 1964 campaign, because this is the kind of rate at which technology advances.
0: And we'll be persuaded to vote for a candidate that we do not know that we are being persuaded to vote exactly. for. Exactly.
4: I mean, this is a rather alarming mm. feature, that you're being persuaded below the level of choice and reason. In... The-
0: In regard to advertising, which you mentioned just a little ago, in your writing, particularly in Enemies of Freedom, you attack Madison Avenue, which controls most of our television and radio, advertising, newspaper advertising, and so forth. Why do you consistently attack the advertising uh, agency? Well, no,
4: I I, I think that uh, advertisement plays a very necessary role, but the danger, it seems to me, in a democracy is this. I mean, what does a democracy depend on? A democracy depends on the individual voter making an intelligent and rational choice for what he regards as his enlightened self-interest in any given circumstance. But what these people are doing, I mean, what both for their particular purposes, the selling goods, and the dictatorial um, propagandists are doing, is to try to bypass the rational side of man and to appeal directly to these unconscious forces below the surface, so that you are in a way making nonsense of the whole democratic procedure, which is based on conscious choice of, on rational grounds.
0: Of course. Well, maybe maybe I, hmm. you have just answered this, this next question because in your essay you write about television commercials, not just political commercials, hmm. but television commercials as such, and how, as you put it, today's children walk around singing beer commercials and toothpaste commercials, and then you link this phenomenon in some way with the dangers of a dictatorship. Now, could you spell out the connection, or how do you feel that you have done
4: so sufficiently? Well, I mean, here yeah, okay, this whole question of children, I think, is a terribly important one, because children are quite clearly much more suggestible than the average grown-up. And, uh, again, suppose that uh, uh, that, for one reason or another, all the propaganda was in the hands of one or very few agencies you would uh, have a, an extraordinarily powerful force playing on these children, who, after all, are going to grow up and be adults quite soon. Uh, I do think that uh, this is not an immediate threat, but it, it remains a possible threat. And you said something to the effect in your
0: essay that the children of Europe used to be called cannon father, and here in the United States, they are television and radio father.
4: Well, uh, after all, they, you can read in the... Uh, in the trade journals the most lyrical accounts of how necessary it is to get hold of the children because then they will be loyal brand buyers later on. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, again, you just translate this into political terms. The dictator says they will be loyal ideology buyers when they're grown up.
0: We hear so much about brainwashing as used by the communists. Do you see any brainwashing other than that which we've just been talking about that is used here in the United
4: States are the forms of brainwashing? Uh, Not in the form uh, that uh, has been used in in China and in Russia because uh, this is uh, essentially the application of propaganda methods, the most violent kind, to individuals. It's not a shotgun method like Mm -hmm. the uh, the advertising method. It's a way of getting hold of the person and playing both on his physiology and his psychology, till he really breaks down, and then you can implant a new idea in his head. I mean, the descriptions of the methods are really blood curdling when you you read them, and not only the methods applied to political prisoners, but the methods applied, for example, to the training of the young communist administrators and missionaries. They receive uh, an incredibly tough kind of training, which may re- causes about 25% of them to break down or commit suicide, but produces 75% of completely one-pointed fanatics. The question, of course, that keeps
0: coming back to my mind mm-hmm. is this: obviously, politics in themselves are not evil. Television is not in itself evil. Well, and yet you seem to fear that it will be used in an evil way. Why is it? that the right people will not in your estimation use them why is it that the wrong people will use these various devices
4: and for the wrong motives well i think one of the uh, of the reasons is that uh, these are all instruments for uh, obtaining power and obviously the passion for power is one of the most moving passions that exist in man and uh, after all this is all democracies are based on the proposition that power is very dangerous and that it's uh, extremely important not to let any one man or any one small group have too much power for too long a time. After what are the British and American constitutions except devices for limiting power? And all these uh, new devices are extremely efficient instruments for the imposition of power by small groups over larger masses. Well, you
0: ask this question yourself, in enemies of freedom, I'll put the I'll put your own question back to you. You ask this: in an age of accelerating overpopulation, of accelerating overorganization, and ever more efficient means of mass communication, how can we preserve the integrity and reassert the value of the human individual? You
4: put the question. Now here's your chance to answer it, Mr. Huxley. Well, this is obviously, first of all, it's a question of education. Uh, I think it's uh, terribly important to uh, insist on individual values. I mean, what is, uh, uh, there is a tendency, as um, you probably read a book by White, The Organization Man, a very interesting, valuable book, I think, where he speaks about the new type of group morality, group ethic which uh, speaks about the group as though the group were somehow more important than the individual. But uh, this seems, as far as I'm concerned, to be uh, in contradiction with uh, what we know about the genetical makeup of human beings, that every human being is unique. And it is, of course, on this uh, genetical basis that the whole idea of the value of freedom is based. And I think it's extremely important for us to uh, stress this in all our educational life, and I would say it's also very important to teach people to be on their guard against the sort of verbal booby traps into which they're always being laid, uh, to, to analyze the kind of things that are said to them. Uh, well, I think there is this whole educational side, uh, and I think there are many more things that one could do to to strengthen uh, people and to make them more aware of what was being done. You're a prophet of decentralization. Well, there, yes, uh, if it's is feasible, uh, it's one of the tragedies, it seems to me. I mean, many people have been talking about the importance of decentralization in order to give back to the voter a, a sense of direct power, I mean, the voter in an enormous electorate feels quite impotent, and his vote seems to count for nothing. This is not true where the electorate is small, and where he is dealing with a a group which he can manage and understand, and if one can, as Jefferson, after all, suggested, break up the units uh, into smaller and smaller uh, units, and so get a real... Uh, self-governing democracy. Well, that was all very well in Jefferson's day, but how can we
0: revamp well, our economic system and decentralize and at the same time meet militarily and economically the the, the tough challenge of a country like Soviet
4: Russia? Well, I think uh, the, the answer to that is that there are, uh, it seems to me that you... Were The production, industrial production, is of two kinds. I mean, there are some kinds of industrial production which obviously need the most tremendously high centralization, like the making of automobiles, for example. But there are many other kinds where you could decentralize quite easily and probably quite economically, and that you would then have uh, this kind of decentralized life. After all, you begin to see it now if you um, travel through the South, this uh, decentralized... uh, Uh, textile industry, which is springing up there. Mr. Huxley, let me ask you this.
0: Quite seriously, is freedom necessary?
4: As far as I'm concerned, it is, yes. Is it necessary for a productive society? Uh, Yes, I I should say it is. I mean, a a genuinely productive society. I mean, I think you could produce plenty of goods without much freedom. But I think the whole sort of creative uh, uh, life of man is uh, ultimately impossible without a considerable measure of uh, individual freedom, of, uh, you, of initiative, creation. All these things which we value, and I think value uh, properly, are impossible without uh, a large measure of freedom. Well, Mister Huxley, take a look again at the country which is
0: in the stance of our opponent. Anyway, it would seem uh, anyway it would seem to be there. Soviet Russia. It is strong and getting stronger economically, militarily. At the same time, it's developing its art forms pretty well. Um, it seems not unnecessarily to uh, to squelch the creative urge among its people, and yet it is
4: not a free society. It's not a free society, but here is something very interesting, that uh, those members of the society, like the scientists, who are doing the creative work, are given far more freedom than anybody else. I mean, it's a privileged aristocratic society in which, provided that they don't poke their noses into political affairs, these people are given a great deal of prestige, a considerable amount of freedom, and a lot of money. I mean, this is a very interesting fact about the new uh, Soviet regime. And I think what we're going to see uh, is a, a... a people on the whole with very little freedom, but with an oligarchy on top, enjoying a considerable measure of freedom and a very high standard of living.
0: And the people down below, the epsilons down below... Enjoying very little. And you think that that kind of situation can long endure?
4: I think it can certainly endure much longer than a situation in which everybody is uh, is kept down. Cause, I mean, they can certainly get... Uh, their technological and scientific results on such a basis.
0: Well, the next time that I talk to you then, perhaps we should investigate further the possibility of the establishment of that kind of a society, where the, where the drones work for the queen bees up
4: above. Well, but yes, but um, I <laughs> must say uh, I still believe in democracy if we can make the best of of the creative activities of the people on top, plus those of the people on the bottom, so much the better.
0: Mr. Huxley, I surely thank you for spending this half hour with us, and I wish you Godspeed, sir. Thank you. Aldous Huxley finds himself these days in a peculiar and disturbing position. A quarter of a century after prophesying an authoritarian state in which people were reduced to ciphers he can point at Soviet Russia and say, I told you so. The crucial question, as he sees it now, is whether the so-called free world is shortly going to give Mr. Huxley the further dubious satisfaction of saying the same thing about us.
1: And uh, so now some uh, 50 years later, what do you think? Can we now say the same thing about our current situation? I'll let you answer that question from your own perspective. Now, the final clips I'd like to play for you right now come from a recorded interview that Aldous Huxley gave in 1961 on a visit to England. The complete interview runs almost two hours, and I'll provide a link to the full recording along with the program notes for this podcast. But I want to uh, thank the Grey Lodge Occult Review, on whose website I found this interview, and uh, it was posted under the same Creative Commons license that we use for these podcasts. So uh, thank you to the Gray Lodge for posting this interview in its entirety, and I'll link to you with program notes here. What I'm going to play right now, however, are just a couple of segments of that interview that I think will help round out the picture of this important man of letters and uh, whose writing has done so much for the worldwide psychedelic community. The topics I've selected to play include a discussion of the arts in general, James Joyce, the best method for discussing philosophy, uh, including an example of how he went about creating some of his work, what he thinks about the supernatural, our lack of great symbols right now, and uh, his involvement with psychedelic substances, all of which I hope will uh, maybe nudge you along a little bit in your own creative thinking. Uh, On the Grey Lodge Occult Review site on which I found this recording, there is uh, a short blurb about it from uh, Sybil Bedford, who was not only a close friend of the Huxleys, but is also his principal biographer. In part, uh, Sybil says The interview took place in the London summer, two long afternoons, punctuated by tea and sherry, in Aldous's sitting room with the view of the trees in Ennismore Gardens. The great point of it all is that it has left us with such a characteristic record not only of Aldous's thought, but of Aldous's way of expressing it. More spontaneous, more informal than his writing, more informal still than his lectures and broadcasts. This record comes as near as anything to the way Aldous talked to his friends. This was his conversation. I suppose I've always had a, a passion.
5: Uh, for knowledge and a certain gift for coordinating facts I mean this is what interests me um, in writing in in expression in thought is the the attempt to coordinate different fields the attempt to say many things at the same time the attempt to bring together into a single coherent and meaningful whole a great many apparently disparate uh, events and uh, uh, data Um this has uh, been the ideal of writing that I've always had and I um, think I have a certain gift for it but, and this is what interests me and but uh, I've always I mean I, I really don't like the very bare, bald, classical style because it's much to my mind hopelessly oversimplified and therefore not true. I mean, life in its uh, reality is incredibly complex and very, very subtle, and therefore I would think that any form of art which is, is as simplified, say, as the French tragedy of the 17th century, is intrinsically an inferior art. I mean, maybe very, very elegant and beautiful, but if you can do it uh, impose order upon a much more complex uh, mass of material as Shakespeare was able to do, this seems to me intrinsically a superior form of art. And I would say this is true of any kind of art. I mean, isn't this the distinction in the uh, pictorial arts between what is technically known as fine art and, uh, and the crafts? it seemed to me, seemed to think that words were omnipotent. I mean, they're not omnipotent. He was a very strange man. I used to see him sometimes in Paris. This extraordinary, what may be called his, his magic view of of words. I mean, it's, it's sort of... I should never forget sitting next to him once at dinner and mentioning to him which I thought would have given him pleasure and it did that i had just been rereading the Odyssey and he, uh, his immediate response was he said now do you realize what the derivation of a disuse the name of disuse is yes. I said no I didn't and he said well it really comes from the two words udice, meaning nobody and Zeus meaning God and that uh, Odysseus is really a symbol of creation of man out of nothing. I mean, this is exactly the sort of uh, of etymology which would have been made by Albertus Magnus in the 13th century. I mean, with absolutely no relation, of course, to anything which uh, we would regard as uh, as realistic etymology, but this completely satisfied Joyce's mind, and this... uh, this curious sort of magic approach to words as having some sort of intrinsic value apart from their references was a very characteristic thing in him. Ulysses is obviously a very extraordinary book. I mean, I don't exactly know why he wrote it because, I mean, a great deal of Ulysses seems to me to be taken up with showing the large number of methods in which novels cannot be written. I suppose it's a great book. It, um, to me, it, it remains a little bit too static, the whole character of Bloom. I mean, there it, it, I mean, are splendid passages. I don't think it's a success as a whole. How do you approach uh, 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 general ideas? I mean, is the best way of expounding general ideas to expound them in abstract terms, which is, of course, the philosophical method, or should one try to write one's philosophy through the medium of individual case histories? This is what I have more and more tried to do. I mean, for example, in the few historical, three historical pieces I've ever written, uh, these were essentially um, attempts to... Uh, Express general, in the widest sense, philosophical ideas in terms of particular case histories. I mean, there's this book I wrote about Father Joseph, The Grey Eminence, the book I wrote about The Devils of Loudun, and then this long essay I wrote on Maine de Biron. I would like very much to find uh, another good sort of biographical historical episode, uh, such as I dealt with in the grey eminence and the devils of Loudun that turned up I mean very years and years ago I read the account in Michelet's Book La of the Loudun case and was interested and incidentally found when I came to look into the documents that it was extremely inaccurate I mean this, this great historian was very slapdash about the way he handled the, the his account of the case Well then I thought no more about it for many years and then quite by chance I picked up in a second-hand bookshop the 19th century reprint in a limited edition of the autobiography of the Prioris and uh, one of Surin's uh, autobiographical things and uh, the late 17th century book by Aubin uh, which is an account of the whole episode. And reading those, I was so fascinated. I mean, there was such extraordinary material there that I began collecting it and found that, in fact, I don't think any historical episode has ever had so much documentation. There are autobiographical statements by the priorists, by Father Surin, a great many letters. All the exorcisms were taken down in shorthand. Great many of them were printed, and of course, a vast number still remain unprinted. But probably, I never read any of the unprinted material because I just can't manage those things. But I don't think they would have contributed anything because most of the exorcisms were very like one another, so that a reasonable cross section of them probably represented the whole fairly clearly. Then there were a great many accounts by outsiders who come to look at the possessions. It became one of the sort of popular tourist resorts in 17th century Europe, and people went from all over the continent to see these nuns rolling about on the floor and screaming obscenities. It was obviously the greatest fun. These nuns were, were their own lunatic asylum, and the whole the whole convent was a lunatic asylum, with this screaming and And with these exorcists deliberately keeping the thing up. I mean, the behavior of the exorcists, this degree of revoltingness and bad faith, which is absolutely appalling. After Grandier had been burned, they sent for the Jesuits to go. The nuns remained just as much possessed and hysterical as ever. And as the uh, Capuchins had failed completely in their efforts at exorcism, uh, they called for the Jesuits, and among whom was this remarkable, very, very able man, but very unstable, uh, uh, psychologically unstable man, Surin, who came from Bordeaux. And he undertook not merely to dispossess the priories, but also to raise her to the highest pitch of mystical perfection and in the process himself became psychologically infected and fell into a state of complete insanity in which he remained for 20 years finally emerging in the last 7 or 8 years of his life becoming one of the major figures in the Uh, French 17th century mysticism and even while he was insane when he couldn't I mean he was so sort of hopelessly down that he couldn't read or write or he could hardly even move uh, he was able to dictate a a work on the spiritual life which I've read it's in three duodecimal volumes of about 1200 pages Admirably well organized, with copious quotations from the Gospels and from the Fathers. Uh, This man who couldn't read or write, I mean, showing that the whole of his intellectual faculties were completely intact, while his uh, emotional and physiological condition was absolutely disastrous. I mean, this man was uh, completely incapable of doing anything at all, and was, in fact, a raving lunatic which is, of course, one of the strangest facts about mental illness, that you you can have these cases. I mean, I've seen them in contemporary life of of, um, people whose intellectual faculties are perfectly sound, and yet whose emotional life is so disturbed that they have to remain locked up in institutions for years at a stretch. It's one of the oddest paradoxes, I find. The whole business of... uh, the legal and psychological aspects of witchcraft in the 17th century very, very interesting I read a lot about it at the time it's very interesting to see how if you don't have a theory of the unconscious you're virtually forced into the idea of possession I mean, I think all the All the exorcists were convinced that this was a genuine diabolic possession. And, of course, they were being paid by the government. They were all getting salaries. When the publicity wore off and people got bored with it, the the whole possession disappeared. I mean, the nuns were under pressure from the exorcists to go on performing. And... uh, when the the money ran out, because they were being paid a subsidy by Richelieu, and they cut cut the subsidy off after a time, and the public opinion got bored, and they all got well. Uh, And then the extraordinary thing, the Paris then made this tour of France, exactly like a movie star, because she fabricated uh, false stigmata on her hand, which she... It was showed that she used to sit in a window with her hand hanging out and thousands of people would come and examine these letters which were written on the hand, supposedly by supernatural means. And she went to visit the king and queen and had most wonderful time. And then again, that was all over. It was like a sort of Marilyn Monroe uh, procession through the country. And then, uh, very pathetically, I mean, uh, she became convinced that she was a sort of second St. Teresa And was going to be a great mystical saint, but of course, in fact, she wasn't. Was sort of acting the part of a great mystical saint. But in the end, she developed cancer. And uh, a lay woman came to live in the monastery. Was a genuinely spiritual person, and it's very touching. I mean, she ended up as quite a humble, genuinely Christian figure in the end. I mean, she made a good ending. in the language of the the church. I mean, she she really understood her own defects and and this endless play-acting which she'd been doing all her life. But the the really strange thing about this whole story is that the whole Loudin affair is interesting only if you take the two sides together. If you take the case of Grandier and then the case of Cyrin, between them, the um, the two episodes describe the religious life on every level, from the most horrible to the most sublime. I mean, the whole gamut of religious life is set forth in a kind of parabolic form in these two episodes. Now, the really extraordinary thing is that, as far as I know, I was the first person to bring these two episodes together in a single volume. Plenty of French people have written about Grandier, and in recent times, plenty of people have written about Sureau, but nobody uh, has thought fit to put the two cases together in a single volume and illustrate this uh, this um, fantastic uh, spectrum of, of the religious life, from the most revolting to the through the most equivocal to the most sublime. I mean, this is the the whole sort of of message of this extraordinary episode, that religion is infinitely ambivalent. I mean, that it has these wonderful sides to it and these appalling sides to it. The interesting thing to do in discussing it, of course, is to bring out both aspects. And here is a story which is strictly historical, and I really never departed from the historical documents, which is at the same time a parable. And this is what I'm looking for, is a a historical or biographical medium, in terms of which uh, I can think about uh, all sorts of general subjects and and philosophical subjects, because I, I do strongly feel that philosophical and religious ideas are much better expressed, not in abstract terms, but in terms of concrete case histories. Biographical or historical, I and mean, if you can find the the right kind of case histories, you can uh, find means of writing what may be called philosophy. I mean, this perhaps is a is too presumptuous a term for what I've written, but I mean, it does permit the the expression of general ideas in a much more Powerful and penetrating way than would be possible if you were just writing about the same things in abstract terms. What part has the supernatural in your life? I don't exactly know what people mean by the supernatural. I mean, in practice, I would say that what people call the natural in our Western tradition is, in fact, our projection of concepts upon the world. Uh, I would say this is um, the natural is our tendency to project uh, our notions and concepts upon the outer world. I mean, to see the outer world not as the immediate datum of experience, but uh, as an embodied label, as a, as the illustration of some generalization already pre-existing in our skulls. This is what we call the natural world. The supernatural world, as far as I'm concerned, is in effect the genuinely natural world, which is the world of immediate experience without all these concepts imposed upon it. I mean, anyone who has uh, ever had the experience of of seeing the world without uh, labels and concepts immediately has the impression of it being supernatural. And I mean, in a curious paradoxical way, nature, as it is in itself, in as much as we can ever know it in itself, is supernatural. The all too natural is this all too human world of, of concepts which we impose upon nature. And this, as far as I'm concerned, is the difference between the natural and the supernatural. The natural is, is what we, uh, is our picture of the world. We, we, with its names and its labels imposed upon it, the utilitarian and scientific and, and generally um, day-to-day picture, and the supernatural is the, the world uh, as it comes to us in its profoundest uh, mystery. Of I mean, One is sometimes suddenly aware of this, this bottomless mystery of existence. I mean, suddenly you're hit by this thing. If you choose to call this the supernatural, and I don't know what other sense it has. I mean, I don't believe in mysterious beings going around and arranging things, but I, I do believe in the in, in the profound unfathomable mystery of life, which I think has a sort of divine quality about it. I think there is a mysterious being, <laughs> but whether he goes around arranging things is another question. I don't, I, don't, I just don't know. I mean, uh, I think one can be complete. Um, um, agnostic and a complete mystic at the same time. I don't see any incompatibility with mysticism and the most skeptical scientific approach. I mean, there's no incompatibility, there's no incompatibility between being a biochemist and having a taste for music. I'm entirely on the side of the mystery. I mean, any attempt to explain away the mystery is ridiculous. This fundamental, everyday mystery of our existence is uh, something which we mustn't try to avoid through intellectual explanation. We have to have intellectual explanations, but we have to be perfectly clear that they're they're not uh, completely satisfying, that we must never take these words too seriously. Words are very important, but if we take them too seriously, we destroy everything. But uh, if we can somehow learn to make the best of both worlds, the world of, of conceptual explanation and the world of immediate experience, the world of the mystery as it's actually given, then we have a full and complete life. Otherwise, we have a, either the life of the sort of savage without any intellectual side at all, or else the so-called life of reason, which is wholly unsatisfactory we have to have both we must make the best of both worlds we have such bad symbols I mean we have really no great symbols now all that we have are these ridiculous nationalist symbols like flags and swastikas and whatnot but uh, no sort of great cosmic symbols I mean when you think of the staggering symbols that the Indians produced I mean the the dancing Shiva, for example, we've never produced anything as comprehensive as this. The dancing Shiva, those little bronze statues, it is the, the Shiva with four arms dancing with one foot raised. Uh, and, well, I mean, I go into the details, they're really quite extraordinary. It's uh, the, the figure stands within a great circle, a sort of halo, which has flames going out, I mean, the symbols of flames. And this is the uh, the circle of uh, mass, energy, space, time. I mean, this is the material world, this is the great uh, world, the uh, all-embracing material world with its flames, with energy. Within this, Shiva dances. He's called Nataraja, the Lord of the Dance, and uh, he dances. He's everywhere in the universe. I mean, this is this is his dance. Uh, the manifestation of the world is called his lila, his play. It's, uh, I mean, he sends his rain upon the just and the unjust, and he's, not, uh, he's beyond good and evil, of course. It's all an immense manifestation of play. Uh, he's, uh, he has this long hair, which is the hair of the yogi, contemplative, and it streams out to the limits of the universe, you see. Therefore, he, this sort of um, yogic knowledge of this contemplation includes everything. He has four arms in the upper right arm he holds a little drum which is the drum which summons things into creation you beat upon this drum things come into existence in his left arm he holds a fire which is what destroys everything Uh, he both creates and destroys his uh, lower right hand is held up in this attitude which means be not afraid in spite of everything it is all right the other hand points down at his feet and one foot is planted squarely on the back of a repulsive and dwarf, this infinitely powerful dwarf called Muyalaka, M- 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 I think his name is, who is the, uh, the ego and he has to break the back of the ego, you see. The, uh, what he's really pointing at is the other foot which is raised and this means this foot is raised against gravitation and is the symbol of um, spiritual contemplation the whole thing is there you see I mean the the world of space and time and matter and energy the world of um, creation and destruction um, the world of uh, psychology I mean how do you get out of this I mean if you don't break the back of the ego you're lost and if you don't uh, Uh, practice um, contemplation uh, there will be no liberation for you I mean uh, we don't have anything remotely approaching such a comprehensive symbol which is both cosmic and psychological and spiritual I mean it is really uh, most unfortunate that we have such miserable uh, symbols but uh, it's a shame we don't have any good symbols like this uh, to, uh, to remind us of who we are and of um, what we can do about it if anything. We have to make the best not only of both worlds but of all the worlds. We, Man is a multiple amphibian who lives in about 20 different worlds at once and if anything is to be done with him to improve his Uh, enjoyment of life, to improve the way he can realize his desirable potentialities, to improve his health, to improve the quality of his relations with other people, to improve his morality, we have to attack on all the fronts at once. And we have the greatest, uh, what may be called the original sin of the human mind, is sloth, It's oversimplification. We want to Think that there is only one cause for any given phenomenon therefore there is one cure there is not and this is the trouble that the, no uh, uh, phenomenon on the human level which is a level of immense complexity can ever have a single cause I and mean, we must always take at least half a dozen uh, conspiring uh, causal factors into consideration and uh, any attempt to improve human life has to take into account the psychological factors, the sociological factors, the physical factors, the chemical factors, all of them. How often have you taken mescaline yourself? I've taken mescaline twice and back acid about five times, I suppose. I would like to take it about once a year, I think. Well one uh, doesn't Most people that I know take it have no desire to sort of fool with it and take it constantly. I mean, the thing, you take it too seriously to to behave in this way towards it, you wouldn't want to wallow in it. I mean, you you need a good deal of time to digest this, I think. I mean, I don't know. Most people I know feel it don't have any special desire to go on taking it. I mean, they, they would like to take it every six months or every year or something of that kind. But uh, I still have to meet one who wants to take it constantly. But isn't it a condition one would want to be in all the time? You couldn't be in it all the time, because um, it is, so to say, beyond the, the level of um, biological efficiency. The world becomes so extraordinary and so absorbing that you couldn't cross the street without considerable risk of being run over and you wouldn't want to do anything else because just experiencing this thing is so extraordinary Is the effect the same on everyone? Statistically about 70% 75% probably get a good and positive and happy result from it a certain percentage get no results and a certain percentage get very unpleasant and hell-like results out of it get very frightened Mine were always positive. Uh, I didn't have what some people have, which is a great um, elaborate visions with the eyes closed. Some people have the most elaborate and uh, circumstantial visionary experiences. I'm, with the eyes closed, I merely see sort of living geometries, but uh, never any of these great landscapes and figures and architectures that some people see. Do you sit? Or do you move about? You spend a lot of time sitting quietly looking at things and uh, getting these sort of strange metaphysical insights into into the, into the world. Is it a habit-forming drug? In most cases it has no more hangover than two cocktails and some people feel actually much better the next day. It's being used to some extent in... In therapy, there's a man here called Sanderson who uses it a lot. There are several people in America and in, in Canada, several groups have had very, very good results with alcoholism using LSD. And there's a new drug now, the um, psilocybin, which is um, derived from the Mexican mushroom, which is the same effect but doesn't last quite so long and that is being used in France uh, therapeutically with some success. When you take a, a capsule of um, 400 milligrams and the lyseric acid, you take this incredibly small dose of 100 a, a gamma, which is one hundred millionths of a gram, a ten-thousandth of a gram, tenth of a milligram, which is a homeopathic dose. It's a perfectly extraordinary that should have an effect. And in fact, it has an effect uh, long after all traces of it have gone out of the body. It has an effect by triggering some, nobody knows exactly what. It probably inhibits uh, one of the 27 enzymes which control the functioning of the brain. Either inhibits one or stimulates one, and I don't think anybody quite knows what it does. The intensity of this is entirely unlike uh, any ordinary experience. But on the other hand, it's, uh, it quite obviously resembles spontaneous experiences certain artists and religious people have unquestionably had. It's an immense intensification of the world, the, ex- uh, the transfiguration of the uh, external world into incredible beauty and uh, significance it's also beyond this kind of aesthetic experience there may be other experiences a sense of um, solidarity with the universe, solidarity with other people uh, understanding of such phrases as you get in the book of Job yea though he slay me, yet will I trust in him this becomes quite comprehensible this thing opens the door to these uh, these experiences which can be of immense value to people if they choose to make use of them, if they don't choose to I mean this is what the Catholics call a gratuitous grace it doesn't guarantee salvation or and it's not sufficient, and it's not necessary salvation, but if it can be collaborated with and used in a in an intelligent way, it can be immense help to people. The sense that in spite of everything, which of course is the ultimate, I suppose, the ultimate mystical conviction, in spite of pain, in spite of death, in spite of horror, the, the universe is in some mysterious sense all right, capital A, capital R.
0: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
1: And I guess what Aldous just said is uh, actually the ultimate teaching we receive through the use of our sacred medicines. And that is the fact that our universe and ultimately the essential core of our own being is uh, doing just fine. Well, I hope that this little audio collage of the words and wisdom of Aldous Huxley was not only interesting for you, but uh, that he may also inspire you to expand your own horizons and make this your most creative year yet. Whether it's uh, starting your own podcast, blogging, painting, playing music, or simply keeping a journal of the progress of your thoughts uh, throughout the year. It really doesn't matter what you create as long as you are uh, following your own bliss and not the orders of somebody else. In other words, uh, hey, be sure to set aside a little time for yourself this year. You deserve it. And uh, I guess I should also mention, uh, <laughs> uh, if you deserve a little credit, uh, that if you sent me some audio to play here in the salon, I'll eventually get to it. the uh, response to my request for audio material that isn't easily found on the net was, more successful than I imagined it would be, and uh, so I've got a lot of previewing and sorting out to do in the weeks ahead, but from what the accompanying emails uh, had to say about some of the material that was sent to me uh, leads me to believe that we're going to be treated to some very interesting new gems this year, and uh, not all of them are going to be from people we already know about. Now while I normally would have a few more comments or an email to read today, I'm going to cut this a little short. The first reason being my hope that you will spend a little time thinking about some of the things Huxley had to say in this podcast that may in uh, some way have a bearing on the future of the creative side of your life. The other reason is that I'm about to head up to L.A. right now in order to attend one of the lectures that my fellow podcasters, KMO and Neil Kramer, are giving on the West Coast leg of their Transitional Alchemy Tour. And uh, I'm sure I'll have more to say about that in my next podcast from here in the salon. But uh, for now, I'll just close today's podcast by once again reminding you that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you uh, have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, if you are interested in the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, you can uh, hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can uh, download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.